It is a joy for me to open God's Word with you again this morning. Uh, my family and I recently moved back to the U.S. from overseas. One of the things we had to do when moving back was uh, buying a car. And the car that I bought uh, came with it a Sirius XM satellite radio introductory plan that was free. And as I was scanning channels, I found a Christian station and began listening to some sermons that were on the Christian station. Um, there was a scene channel on Sirius XM. And I began listening to him teaching about the life of Abraham. And his sermon, in his sermon, he was using the Bible to offer to advice and many self-help tips for a happier life, for your best life now. I wonder if you've heard preaching like this. You know that there is a whole generation of people who have been raised hearing the Bible preached in this way, as if it is simply a self-help manual for a smoother and happier life now. And this situation, folks, is a tragedy. It is a tragedy. For the Bible, God's revelation of himself to mankind is so much more than that. If there is one book in the Bible that is often thought to be a collection of tips and advice for a better life, it is the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And today we begin a sermon series in the book. Now Proverbs has been loved by generations of Christians who find in it both profound wisdom and practical help in life. I grew up reading leather-bound copies of the New Testament that included two Old Testament books back, Psalms and Proverbs. But Proverbs is not merely a book of tips and advice for a better life now. No, Proverbs is an education course in true wisdom. Proverbs is an education course in true wisdom. God's wisdom. This teaches the humble student about the most important things in life. The stuff of ultimate importance. Knowing God. Trusting God. Obeying God. And relating to others as He intends. Proverbs gives the willing listener a clear vision for fearing God, loving neighbor, and applying wisdom to every area of life in this fallen world. Here we find God as the professor of the course. And anyone who has ears to hear as the eager student, the learned pupil. Turn with me to the Old Testament book of Proverbs. We'll be considering Proverbs' introduction this morning. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. As you turn there, a quick note on the context of the book. Proverbs is one of the wisdom books in the Old Testament. It comes after Job and Psalms. If you're not familiar with the Bible, open to about the middle of your Bible and you should see Psalms. It's the next book, Proverbs. And it comes Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. These books are unique. They're full of poetry. Is it this? that better? These books are unique. They are full of poetry, full of prayers, 
and reflections about suffering and life in this fallen world. Now, the book of Proverbs are in large part attributed to Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. And at the beginning of Solomon's reign as king, after his father David had died, God came to him at night in a dream, and he asked him a question. He said, Solomon, ask, what should I give you? I wonder if God were to come to you and ask you such an open-ended question. What would you ask for? Solomon, being humble, asked for one thing. Wisdom. He asked for wisdom and knowledge. Of all the things he could have asked for, he asked for wisdom. He knew he was young, and he knew he lacked the discernment necessary to rule a great kingdom. Now consider for a moment Solomon's self-awareness here. His proper self-assessment. Realizing that he lacks wisdom and knowledge. I wonder how often we're this way. Willing to admit what we don't know. Willing to have open ears to hear knowledge and wisdom from outside us. And in this way, Solomon is so unlike his brothers. Because the story of 2 Samuel, the book before 1 Kings, is the story of not only David's rule, but then the brothers of Solomon that attempted to take the kingdom for themselves and in their pride and arrogance thought, I can be king, I can rule. I can rule this kingdom better than my father David. Let's kill him and get him out of the way so that we can rule. But Solomon asks God for wisdom. And God was delighted with this request. He's always delighted with this request. And he gave Solomon wisdom in abundance. 1 Kings 4 says that Solomon became wiser than all other men. And Solomon's wisdom brought him fame, causing many from the surrounding nations to come and to sit, to listen to him and to hear from his wisdom. 1 Kings 4.32 says that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. And Ecclesiastes 12.9 and 10 says that Solomon taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. And the book of Proverbs is a collection of Solomon's divinely inspired wisdom. We'll be looking this morning at Proverbs 1, 1 to 7. And my main point from the text is this, if you're taking notes. The main point, true wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. True wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And we'll look at three points this morning. Point number one, wisdom's syllabus. Point number two, wisdom's student. And point number three, wisdom's source. Wisdom's syllabus, verses one to three. Wisdom's student, verses four to six. And wisdom's source, verse seven. I pray this morning that we, all of us, would have ears to hear God's timeless truth and hearts that would truly fear the Lord. Let's begin with point number one, wisdom's syllabus. Let's read the whole passage. I'll begin reading in Proverbs 1 and verse 1. This is God's word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear 
and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The passage begins in verse 1 with a description of the book. Describing this as the Proverbs of Solomon. This book is full of Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Now what is a proverb? There's a vocabulary word. Well, a proverb is wisdom in compact form. It's encapsulated wisdom. It is wisdom boiled down and summarized into short, memorable sayings. Many cultures have incorporated this style of speaking into their language and conversation. English has many proverbs that are a normal part of our everyday conversation. You will hear people reciting such proverbs, both biblical ones, but even our own English ones on a regular basis. Proverbs like, look before you leap. Look before you leap. A warning to assess the situation first before jumping in with both feet. Or better safe than sorry. A warning to avoid serious risk uh, rather than risking losing everything. Or another one, nothing ventured, nothing gained. A challenge that if you want to succeed, you have to try. Or when the cat's away, the mice will play. An observation that when authority figures are missing... People get into trouble. Now notice that many even of our English proverbs have poetic features to them. Repeated words. They have uh, rhyming words. Or multiple words that begin with the same letter. Look before you leap. Better safe than sorry. Now Hebrew proverbs as well take a particular form. But the form is a bit more strict than with our English proverbs. Turn with me to Proverbs 10. Verse 1, which is the section of the book where these Proverbs then begin being laid out and are arranged for us. Look at a couple of examples quickly. Look at 10 in verse 1. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Here's a pretty standard Hebrew proverb. Now you see here there's symmetry. There's two lines. There is parallelism. There are two sons being compared, a wise son and a foolish son. And then there is the glad father being compared with the sorrowful mother. So there's not only symmetry and parallelism, but there's also comparisons and contrasts being made with the two lines. Look at Proverbs 10.4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. You see in this proverb, the lazy, in general will become poor, and the hardworking in general will be richly provided for. Now, while much of the rest of the book is a collection of these Proverbs, and we will get to them eventually, the book begins with an extended poetic dialogue, a conversation between a father and his son. That's Proverbs 1-9. to And verses 1-7 to of chapter 1 are an introduction to the whole book. And that's what we'll be looking at together this morning. So turn back to Proverbs 1, and we'll pick up again in verses 2 and 3. I'm going to read this again. 
to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now look first with me at verses 2 and 3, the, the goal of the class. You see that the goal of this class, of this course of wisdom, is to teach wisdom. It is for the student to gain knowledge and understanding. To understand the wise words that are found here in the book and as well that are found elsewhere in God's Word. To give to the simple person prudence. And to give to young people knowledge and discernment. We'll think more in a minute about the kind of student that the writer of Proverbs has in mind. But we'll consider first the content of the course. See, the content of the course here is true wisdom. Now, what is wisdom as defined in in the Bible? Well, the Hebrew word can be defined as masterful skill. Masterful skill. And that word is used throughout the Old Testament in a variety of ways to describe different kinds of wisdom and skill. Scholarly ability, wisdom in judgment, wisdom in politics, wisdom in battle, wisdom in all kinds of art, metallurgy, weaving, construction. It is even used to describe wisdom in magic arts, dark arts. But wisdom as used in the book of Proverbs is a more specific kind of wisdom. One writer describes the masterful skill that makes up the wisdom talked about in Proverbs can be understood not just as a general skill, but a particular kind of skill. He calls it social skill. The kind of social skill that allows a human being to know how to relate to God to know how to relate with others in this world, to know how to relate parents with children, employers with employees, kings with subjects, and a whole host of other kinds of relationships that you find in this world. But the most important skill is the skill of relating to God. You see, the the wisdom being talked about in the book of Proverbs, at its heart the ability to know God and to be known by Him and to be in a right relationship with Him. For this is the most important wisdom. This is the wisdom that matters. Now you look at some of the characteristics of the wisdom being talked about here in Proverbs 1. And we can understand more of the characteristics by the other terms that are used here to describe this wisdom. You see that the writer is kind of trumping up lots of words all at once and throwing them all into this short introduction. Words like knowledge and understanding, prudence, discretion and guidance, righteousness, justice, equity. You see, the wisdom that God speaks of here is multifaceted. It is a complex skill that has many parts and many faces. We see this by just the number of terms used here and in the rest of the book to talk about wisdom. These words are used together, side by side, in parallel with one another. 
They are even at times used interchangeably, one being a, a, a reference point for the other. Look at some of the terms here that describe what true wisdom involves and includes. It includes knowledge and understanding, though it is more than that. It includes that. You see that the wisdom being talked about in the book of Proverbs is the ability to apply the truth and to apply true knowledge and understanding, but it must have knowledge and understanding in order to apply it. It also includes prudence and discretion and guidance. These words describe an analytical ability to not just understand the truth, but then be able to reflect on and distinguish between things that are good versus things that are evil. And to also be able to consider what would be the wisest course in decision. You see also the words here, righteousness in verse 3, and justice and equity. Wisdom, true wisdom, cannot be separated from any of these attributes. You see, it's impossible to be a wise person who is unrighteous or a wise person who is unjust, or a wise person who is not fair. You see, those that are wise will also be all of these other things as well. But wisdom has application, then, to every area of life, beginning with our relationship with God, but then stemming from that into application into every other Uh, aspect of life in this fallen world. As we consider how to apply this to our lives, consider with me for a minute that the wisdom being talked about here is not natural to us. Did you know that? We often hear people talk about looking within yourself for wisdom or for truth or being true to yourself. Do you know that wisdom isn't natural to us? We don't come ready-made with wisdom inherent to us. See how God here talks about truth and wisdom as something that must be taught and learned, something that must come from the outside and be embraced by the heart and the mind. We are naturally, in and of ourselves, ignorant of the truth, even opposed to it. And if we are to acquire the wisdom that is being offered here by God, we must be humble. We must be humble to receive it. And that leads us to our second point. Point number two, wisdom student. Wisdom student. Begin reading in verse four. Look at the student being described here. To give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands, obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now, the book of Proverbs is full of many interesting characters. We see a couple of them introduced here. We're going to get to know more of them in in the weeks ahead. But look at a couple of the characters described here. There are those that are wise and those that are foolish. And here we see that there are also those that are simple or youthful, young. Now, the simple person here is an interesting character. And the simple person is actually the one that the whole book is addressed to. 
That is the student that the Proverbs has in mind, the simple one. Now, the simple one is young. He's not exactly innocent, but he's young. He is naive and inexperienced. He is susceptible to temptation and influence, but with the simple person, there is hope. For the simple person is able to be steered and turned. Both towards the foolish and evil, but also able to be influenced for the good and pointed into true wisdom. Now, the simple person here is compared with the young. And often the two are used interchangeably, the simple and the young. The Bible talks about young people as being those that are simple and need of guidance, need of direction, if they are to become wise and not be drawn away into foolishness. And that's what these first nine chapters have in mind. It is an address from a father to his son, concerned that his son is steered into the path of wisdom, into a wisdom that would lead him to know God, to be known by God, and to to live a life that would honor and please him. But you see also another character here, the character of the wise person in verse 5. Now what's so interesting about the wise person here is that he isn't described the way we might think of a wise person. If I were to ask you to consider what does a wise person look like, we would tend to think of some old, grayed sage with a long beard, much experience, someone who has attained all kinds of knowledge. But do you see that that isn't how the wise person is described here in verse 5? The wise person here isn't someone who has attained all knowledge, but rather the kind of person who has the right posture. You know, it's possible for a young person to be wise if they have the correct posture. Do you see that the posture there in verse 5 is a posture of humility, a willingness to hear the truth, to grasp wisdom, to embrace it, and to follow after it. You see that the wise here doesn't know it all, but because they listen, they will increase in learning. They will continue on the path of wisdom. You can begin on the path of wisdom and become wise quickly if you have the right posture. So that the student's characteristics as described here, that is the right student to enter this course, this class of wisdom, is one who is humble and teachable. Or one who, as Jesus described it, has ears to hear. I um, came across a a quote recently by the pastor, uh, the 19th century pastor, Charles Spurgeon. He describes in his autobiography one of his um, converts from his early years of ministry when he was only a teenager. He describes an elderly woman who came to faith and then soon after coming to faith was so discouraged with how she now came to see she had wasted her responsibility as a mother. She now had found peace with God, but as soon as she had come to know Christ, she went to try to speak to her now adult children about Christ. And she was so discouraged because they were no longer young, no longer simple, no longer malleable, or able to listen to the truth anymore. 
And she was so discouraged. She says, when I, as soon as I was converted, I went down to my eldest son, who now had a large family. And I told him what the Lord had done for me. And I pleaded with him to come here with me to the services of the church. But he said that he had no time. When I pleaded hard with him, he said he was sure I meant well, but it was a no-go. He liked his Sunday at home too well to go to hear Parsons preach. And she said, you know, sir, you, can bend, you can't bend a tree. You can't bend a tree. I ought to have bent the twig when I could have done it. Oh, if I had but led him to the house of God when he was little. He would have gone then, for he loved his mother. And so he does now, but not enough to go where I want him to go. So you see, I can do nothing with my son now. He uh, applies this sad story with a word for young mothers. He says, as you love your babies now, do not allow them to grow up without divine instruction. But you cannot teach your child if you do not know the Lord Jesus yourself. May the good Lord lead you to give your heart to Christ and then help you to train your dear little ones for heaven. You see in this illustration what what happened. A, A woman, she now realizes, squandered the years that she had as a mother with her young children when they were still simple, when they were still moldable and malleable, when they were still in this position of being simple and young and able to be formed and shaped by the truth. And she regretted that it was now too late, that they had now reached a point of no return. They had now become foolish. Even worse than that, they had become the character that Proverbs will go on to describe of the mocker or the scoffer, the one who not only rejects the truth, but mocks those who believe it. Let me encourage you, mothers and fathers, you are in a particular time in life that is busy and difficult, full of stress, but also joy. But you see here, there is an opportunity for you to bring your children into this class, this course of wisdom. You have an opportunity to bring them into the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of true wisdom. You are able in this, this season, while your children are young and simple, to point them towards truth and an opportunity to shape them towards Christ. Let me encourage you, mothers and fathers, and we'll have more application like this as the book goes on because so much of it is a dialogue between a father and a son. Let me encourage you not to squander the opportunity you have. Let me encourage you as well, members of this church, to consider the opportunity of serving in children's ministry. We have among us many who are simple and young and willing to learn the truth. Take the opportunity to serve and to to speak about the gospel and about true wisdom to the little ones among us. If you're here this morning and you are young, if you are a child or you are a youth, do you know that this book is particularly addressed to you? This book is for you. It's a book written for young people, holding out to you the the path of wisdom and of righteousness that you are to go down. And let me say to you quickly, children, 
You are, even today, even while you sit in your pews, you are making decisions that are going to lead to the kind of person you're going to become in the future. Your character, even now, is being formed and shaped. And you are going in either one of two directions, either towards wisdom and eternal life or towards foolishness and eternal death. Let me encourage you, young ones, to listen, to open your ears to the truth that you find here in the book of Proverbs. Well, that brings us to point number three, wisdom's source. Point number three, wisdom's source. Let's focus now on verse seven. And verse seven is the key to the whole book. The main verse and theme of the whole book of Proverbs. Let's read it one more time. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. What is this fear of the Lord being talked about here, if it's such a major theme in the book? I think the best definition that I can give for the fear of the Lord is found in the next book in the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So turn with me to Ecclesiastes 12 and look at the last two verses of Ecclesiastes. It's a theme not only in the book of Proverbs, but in all the wisdom books. And this theme of the fear of the Lord comes up in Job, comes up in Psalms and Proverbs, and here in Ecclesiastes. Look at what it says. The end of the matter. All has been heard. What is the end of the matter? Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Now how is the fear of the Lord described then in verse 14? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, it is an awe-filled acknowledgement that God is our creator and judge. It is the deep-seated heart and mind knowledge that God exists and that all of us will one day have to face Him. We'll have to stand before Him and give an account for our lives, for everything that we have done. You see, the fear of the Lord is an acknowledgement that not only that God exists and that He's there somewhere, but that He is a personal God who is intimately aware with everything that we do, everything that we say, and He cares about those things, and one day He will hold us to an account for that. Now, the, the reality of this fact that God is our judge and that one day we will stand before Him is ultimately what leads those that are not Christians to actually become a Christian. It is a knowledge of God's holiness, His justice, and His wrath against sin that actually brings us into a relationship with Him. It, it is what should drive those of us who are sinners to God, knowing that He is the only one who can deal with our sin, that He is the only one, not only that we're accountable to, but who has made a way through His Son, Jesus Christ, for washing our sin away through His death on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners like us. It is the fear of the Lord that drives the sinner to God as the judge for forgiveness and pardon and mercy. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you 
to have ears to hear this truth. That the God who made everything and who made you is your creator and your judge. And one day, whether you admit it or not, you will stand before him. Whether you want to or not, you will stand before him. And whether you're ready or not, you will stand before him. The question is whether you'll be ready to face him. As a judge or as your savior. Now, for those of us who are Christians, while we are no longer in fear and dread of God's justice and wrath against our sin, there is still a healthy fear of God that should drive us and that should color all of our lives. It's talked about in the parables of Jesus. Jesus is regularly saying, you need to be ready because the judge is coming again and he will return soon. The master is coming and he will hold you to an account for what he entrusted you with. Make sure you're ready. Make sure you're being faithful. Or as other of the apostles write in their epistles, the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. Let's live lives busy about his work so that we're ready to meet him when he returns. Now when it comes to this fear of the Lord, knowing what it looks like, Our clearest display and example of this is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who perfectly demonstrated a right and proper fear of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 11 describes the Messiah this way. You can turn with me if you'd like. In Isaiah 11, the prophet Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Do you want to know what a right fear of the Lord looks like? Look at Jesus. And do you know what a proper fear of his Father fear of the Lord looked like in the life of Jesus? Well, it looked like him leaving behind heaven, leaving behind his throne, entering earth and humbling himself to be born as a baby, to be born as a child and to grow up as a young man in this world, to to live in this world the perfect life that we didn't live, to face suffering and temptation and pain for us to teach those that were foolish and ignorant and to point them towards the truth of true wisdom, to heal those that were hurting, to defend the case of the the widow and the powerless, to seek justice and righteousness, and ultimately to lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners as he was in the garden, praying to his heavenly Father and asking him, Father, can this cup of your wrath be passed from me? He submitted himself to his Father. He submitted himself to the will of his Father and humbled himself. And out of fear of his Father, a proper fear and a desire to please him, he went to the cross, despising the shame and was resurrected from the dead and is now ascended to heaven, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, 
and is now interceding on our behalf and is now leading us into all wisdom and truth as he speaks to us from his word and from his spirit and is now leading those of us that know him to live lives that would follow in his footsteps, lives of true wisdom and holiness. As we consider the book of Proverbs in the coming weeks, I wonder, do you have ears to hear true wisdom? Do you have a heart that is humble to listen to God? Well, the class of wisdom is in session. There's open enrollment. The tuition is free. But are you willing to humble yourself and listen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you that you do not leave us in the dark, though we would deserve to stay there, but that you have brought us into the light of your truth and wisdom and that you beckon those that are foolish to come, those who do not have money to come and to find with you all wisdom and understanding and ultimately a rich and free relationship with you that will last forever. We pray that all of us would have hearts that are humble and ears that are open to listen to true wisdom. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.